Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. This evening we continue our walk through the book of 1 Samuel. And if you have been with us, you know that we have been reading entire chapters, which kind of hinders our normal preaching pattern. I like to speak more words than this evening will allow because I really want to give God's word the opportunity to speak directly to you. And so even though the story of David and Goliath is one of the most famous, well-known stories. Chances are you first heard it as a child or read about it in a storybook. We want to give the story full voice. And so I'll be reading through the entire chapter of 1 Samuel 17, taking breaks as I go to make comments uh, and to share some thoughts and applications. Uh, the story of David and Goliath is going to take us into the troubled time in, uh, in Israel's history. Uh, the leadership of the nation was in serious trouble. Uh, as you may know, Saul had been appointed Israel's first king, and that was at the people's demand. Israel wanted a king like the nations had, a king that would go out and fight their battles, protecting them from their enemies and defeating their enemies. And they believed a king would bring increased stability and security. And, and that brings us to this account of David and Goliath. And it has all the ingredients of a great story. Drama, irony, anticipation, a good guy defeating a really, really bad guy. And uh, it's a captivating story, so I want to read it to you. And we're going to read all, I think it's what, 57 verses... Um, but in order to understand how this story fits within the larger context of redemptive history, I want to frame the story by looking at the three kings that the story speaks of. Uh, two kings are named directly and mentioned directly in the story. There's the king that's being replaced, that's King Saul. There's the king on the rise, that's King David. And then the third king, Jesus, uh, brings fuller resolution to the story within the broader scope of redemptive history. So let's start by looking at the situation of this first king, King Saul, and the trouble he had gotten himself into. 1 Samuel 17, starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belonged to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azka in uh, Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a great valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. 
and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the slaves of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants." And serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Chapter 17 here opens with alarming words. Now the Philistines had gathered their armies for battle. And as John Woodhouse shows, this Philistine threat was an ongoing threat for Israel. The Philistines first appeared uh, in chapter 4, where hostilities against the Philistines led to a double defeat, first the capture of the ark, and then the death of the high priest Eli and his sons. However, in chapter 7, Israel repents and the Lord delivers Israel from the Philistines, but, but the Philistines persist, and this caused Israel to demand a king in order to free them from, Israel, uh, from uh, Philistine oppression. And God granted their request in the person of Saul, and, uh, and Samuel uh, said that he shall save the people of God from the hand of the Philistines. Uh, the opportunity... For Saul to do this came over and over again in chapter 13 and 14. Saul had an opportunity that was actually created by his son Jonathan, and in foolishness, Saul undermined his son. And even though Israel defeated the Philistines, their victory was, quote, not great, as it said in 1 Samuel 14. And so the consequences of Saul's folly was this ongoing hard fighting against the Philistines. Now, while the Philistines had been pushed back at this point in chapter 17, about 14 miles to the west of where they had last battled in the heartlands of Judah, we must remember that that was due to Jonathan's leadership, not Saul's. And we see here a renewal of hostilities in the Valley of Elah, which would remind the reader of of the lost opportunities of total victory. And the scene here is strikingly similar to ones we've seen before as we've gone through 1 Samuel in chapter 13 and 14. We have two forces facing each other across the ravine. But unlike the previous uh, episodes, the Valley of Elah uh, did not have steep ravines. It was a broader, bigger stage for a battle with a bigger man. And Goliath is described as the champion. And, and if you notice in verse 4 through 7, he makes quite the impression. The writer just takes time to describe this man is nine feet tall. He has superior weapons and armor. He has a coat of mail weighing 126 pounds. His legs are protected by 
bronze armor. He has a javelin and a spear that's like a weaver's beam. And the, uh, the iron head on his spear is 15 pounds. So the narrator is going to spill a lot of ink describing the, the menacing appearance of this indestructible figure who stands before Israel bellowing threats against their army. And in verse 8, he shouts, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Now that question strikes a chord because there's a pregnant pause as he asks the question because it's clear that Israel lacks decisive leadership. And he continues by saying, choose a man for yourself. Let him come down to me. And that challenge again strikes that chord because Samuel's already said that the people had chosen a king for themselves and his name was Saul. And he's the only person in Israel already chosen by them who had anything like the appearance uh, of the Philistine that he's facing. Remember the credentials of Saul? He stood ahead above any other Israelite. And so here Saul had been chosen by the people for such a time as this. And Goliath is laying out the challenge. Let a Philistine representative go up against an Israelite representative and winner takes all. But the challenge just sort of hangs in the air. And the silence is deafening. As he says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day to give me a man that we might fight together. And how do we see Saul and the Israelites respond? On their side of the valley, there's utter silence. Crickets, because they're all shaking in fear. It says, when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were greatly afraid. So what God had said of Saul in the beginning, that he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, is proving to be not true. We see no indication of that here. In fact, there's, there's no distinction between Saul and the rest of Israel. We don't see Saul seeing things with the eyes of faith, but rather he, like the rest, are paralyzed with fear. And so what does God do? Well, he raises up a second king, and to that we turn in verse 12. And the second king is unexpected. He raises up a king who, as we will see, his power is made perfect in weakness. Pick up in verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of these three sons who went to battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Aminadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistines came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. 
And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions that he had and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment of the troops as the troops were going out to the battle line and shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle against uh, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the men, the man, fleed from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word that I spoke? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered David again as before. So the story takes a remarkable turn. We were in the valley of Elah where Goliath was shouting taunts against Saul in Israel. But all of a sudden, we're 12 miles east in the little town of Bethlehem. And we have met David already in chapter 16 where Samuel was sent by God to anoint a son of Jesse, the king of Israel. And we know how God had passed over the older brothers and anointed the youngest because God looked at the heart, not as man looks on outward appearances. And upon David's anointing, the spirit of the Lord had rushed upon David now, I just want to make mention of this because if you read some of, verses, uh, some of chapter 16, 17, and 18 don't seem to quite fit in chronological order. And while the first half of chapter 16 seems chronological, some commentators are less confident that the second of half of chapter 16 is chronological. Biblical authors sometimes order the episodes to emphasize a theme rather than a, a sequence of events. And I don't have the time tonight to get into all the different perspectives or to compare the, uh, the text of the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew um, version of the Old Testament to the Masoretic text. Uh, just for our purpose tonight, the thing to know is that David shows up on the scene as the unexpected hero that the reader already knows something that no one else knows. That he will prove to be Israel's true king because he has already been anointed by God as king, that he is God's real hero. 
And if you notice in verse 12, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. And he has these older brothers who had been in the battle listening to these taunts of Goliath every day, but had done nothing to volunteer their services. And Jesse sends David on this errand to take foods and a gift to the commander and to bring back news. And David sets out on this unremarkable chore. He leaves early in the morning. One commentator notes that that David appears no more remarkable than than an obedient servant doing his father's bidding. And we begin to see the, the beautiful secret that will make David a great king, something that others overlook because God values the heart more than appearances. And so when David arrives on the scene and Goliath is repeating his daily tirade of why are you drawn up for battle? Choose a man among yourselves and let him come down. We've heard this day after day after day. The only difference this time is in verse 23. David heard it as well. And as far as everyone else that's lined up on Israel's side was concerned, nothing had changed. But to us who are reading and to the narrator, we know that David is God's real hero and a lot is about to change. And so in verses 24 and 25, David overhears the troops discussing the king's offer that whoever kills Goliath will be given riches, the king's daughter, and tax exemption. And this causes David to ask two questions. First, to clarify the rumor. Is that true? (laughs) What is the reward for the person who kills this Philistine and puts an end to the mockery of Israel? But, But he also asks a second question which seems almost rhetorical. He says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy and mock the armies of the living God? And all the troops answer the first question, but there's no response to the second question. See, David remembered what everyone else seemed to be forgetting. Israel served a living God. And this uncircumcised Philistine served a dead idol. And if we remember back in 1 Samuel 5 when the ark of God had been taken into Dagon's temple, the Philistine god, Dagon had fallen face first to the ground and David believed that this uncircumcised Philistine would follow suit. Now while we don't get a response from the troops to this second question, we do get a response from David's older brother who's annoyed. He says, why have you come? With whom have you left those few sheep? See, before David has to endure Goliath's derision, he faces hostility from his own family. Like Joseph's brothers, Eliab's hostility is rooted in jealousy. But if chapter 16 precedes chapter 17 chronologically and not just thematically, then it clarifies for us, the reader, that Eliab knew David's status as God's chosen. So he's not just jealous, but Eliab, like Goliath, stands in opposition to God's chosen one. And so here we have God's real hero, but he's being derided by all by brothers and enemies alike. But you got to love it. David's not deterred. We pick up in verse 31. When the words 
that David spoke were heard, everyone repeated them before Saul, and so he sent for him. Now, while David's brothers were unimpressed by his apparent bravado, David's words did spread, for his words were marked by faith. We see that David had acknowledged that Israel served the living God, and he must be taken seriously both by God's people and God's enemies. And and David recognized that Israel belonged to God, that her armies were the armies of the living God. And David saw that this Philistine's insult was not just an insult to Israel, but to Yahweh. And so in verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should mock the armies of the living God? And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep the sheep for his father, and when there was a lion or a bear and uh, or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Again, Saul's inactivity speaks volumes here. His failure to respond to Goliath's challenge reminds us that he is actually the obvious one to do so. Um, And we're vividly aware that, that David's special status as the chosen and unexpected king is going to play out here. But Saul had no idea of that, of course. Yet it's remarkable how David takes charge of the meeting with Saul. And he proclaims good news. He says, let no man's heart fail because of this Philistine. I'll go and fight him. Of course, these words seem outrageous. Faced with a threat like Goliath, there were more sensible words to, to utter. Things like, let's, ride, uh, let's run and hide, or let's wait until winter and he goes home, or let's only respond if we must. Yet David said, I'll go and fight him. Let not your heart fail. And his words are bold and to the point, for that is exactly what Saul suffered. Fear indicated by heart failure. Then David proposed to serve Saul and Israel by fighting their terrible enemy. And in verse 33, it's not difficult to see Saul's incredulity. He says, you're not able to fight against the Philistine. You're but a youth. And he's been trained as a man of war from his youth. But David won't be put off. He, he tells the story of, of past successes as a deliverer, how As a shepherd, he had rescued many lambs from the clutches of deadly danger, and and David's youth may not be as as empty as, as Saul assumed. He would strike down the uncircumcised Philistine as he had both the lion and the bear. But notice that while David is mentioning what he will do to strike down this Philistine, the root of his confidence is not in his strength or his skill, 
But in the Lord, in verse 37, he says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And incidentally, this is the first time in this chapter that God's covenant name of Yahweh is used. And David is the one that uses it because he sees his God as a living God. Fear had gripped Saul's heart because he had forgotten who Yahweh was, but David saw things differently and he knew that Yahweh delivers. It's quite a speech, obviously it convinces Saul. And so he says, go and the Lord be with you. We pick up in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And then David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I I cannot go with these. I've not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now, we should kind of pause here and, and appreciate the irony that Saul, the king, was placing his royal garments on David. Saul obviously didn't understand the symbolism in this moment or in this action, but we the readers do. We know that Saul's on his way out, and David was God's designated replacement. But David was not to be a king like Saul. He was not to be a king like the nations, one who trusted in sword and spear and his own strength. And so Saul's weapons could not be his And so he puts them off. And instead, David trusted God to deliver him through his own weaker weapons and weaker ways. And so he takes his staff, chooses five stones, and approaches the Philistine with a sling in hand. And picking up at verse 41, and the Philistine moved toward forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Notice again the writers giving Goliath Uh, opportunity to dominate the scene. The Philistine is described as one who moves forward and disdains and questions and curse. Five times the writer says the Philistine does this and that. He allows the Philistine to dominate the scene. And in contrast, we see David's weakness throughout the story, but here it's really driven home Dale Davis points it out. He said, Eliab essentially said to David, David, you're pain. That's the older brother. Saul basically said to David, David, you're too green. And Goliath says here to David, David, you're puny. But David's confidence remains strong because his confidence was in the Lord, not in his strength, not in his circumstances, not in himself. And so we pick up in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Someone once said that uh, David can match Goliath's spicy speech. (laughs) There's no reason for the Philistine to have all the juicy lines. And David turns Goliath's curses back on himself. But again, David's confidence is not in his sharp-wittedness, but in his Lord. And he says, you come to me with sword and spear, but I come in the name of the Lord. The battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. David is very clear and to the point of what this victory will prove. That it will not prove that Israel is better. That it will not prove that David is stronger. But what will it prove? That God is God. That he is the living God of Israel. That is what it will prove, and that he does not save by sword and spear. Now, the time for action had come. It's taken 47 verses to get here, but the critical moments here. But notice how briefly the action is described. In verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath And killed him and cut off his head with it. And here we see Goliath fell just as Dagon had fallen in Ashdod in chapter 5. And it was not by the might of weapons that Goliath fell, but by the might of God. Just as God had caused Dagon to fall down with a severed head, so God had called, uh, had allowed Goliath to fall down with a severed head, not by David's sword but by his own sword. And in verse 51, we continue, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And here we see the Philistines reneging on their agreement. I remember Goliath had said that if the representative of Israel defeats me, a representative from the Philistines, we will become your slaves. But they didn't follow through on that. However, David's victory emboldens the faith faith of Israel and Judah. God's people arise with a shout and pursue the Philistines finally and plunder their camp. And then David 
as a trophy, takes the head of Goliath as well as his armor. And, and these are not trophies of David's strength, but these are trophies of God's faithfulness. And closing in verse 55, as soon as Saul saw that David uh, go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, his commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Bethlehemite." And here, the story of David and Goliath ends. With King Saul still largely ignorant of the true identity of David, Saul is trying to figure out whose son he is. He's probably asking the question to figure out how to handle that gift he had promised. If you remember, he promised to make his father's household free, meaning free of taxes. But the reader knows who this son of Jesse is, that he's God's real hero, the future king. Now, with all that said, the the story of David and Goliath is not complete unless we place it within the larger scope of redemptive history. See, David did remarkable in battle that day, but he's not the ultimate hero. There would be another king, another son of David, a son of Jesse, who would defeat an even bigger and more menacing giant, death. And like David, he would be God's unexpected hero. He would obey his heavenly father in all the small things. He would be a faithful shepherd. He would come in weakness. He would win an unexpected battle through weakness and deal a fatal blow to the head of his enemy, not with sword or spear, but through a cross. And at his victory, his people would be given new hope to fight their enemies of sin and death. And as they did, they would plunder the enemy and take back what the enemy had stolen. See, Jesus is God's ultimate hero. And in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, the risen Lord, when he's speaking to the two men on the road to Emmaus, explains how all the real heroes of the Old Testament, like David and Moses and Abraham, all those heroes of the Old Testament point to him. Walking on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Did you hear that? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What does Jesus have to do with Moses and David and Abraham? See, Jesus is rebuking his disciples here, is calling them foolish ones for missing the main point of the Old Testament. The main point of the Old Testament was not look to Moses or be more like Moses or look to David and be more like David, be courageous and be brave. Besides, we should think we shouldn't always seek to be more like David, should we? Which David are you talking about? The David on the battlefield or the David in bed with Bathsheba? 
See, David was a sinner like the rest of us. He committed adultery and murder to cover it up. And so when we read the Old Testament that way, where we're looking to Old Testament heroes as examples, you know what we're actually doing when we do that? We're making ourselves the heroes. Because we're saying, how can I be like them so that I can be the hero like they were the hero? But that's not what the Old Testament was for primarily. The Old Testament points to Jesus, the ultimate hero, He is the real hero. He is God's hero. David wasn't the hero. David even raises that point. He says, it is the Lord who will deliver you into my hands. It is the Lord who will defeat Goliath and the enemies. And he came in the name and the power of the Lord. See, Jesus says, all all those stories point to me. I'm the ultimate Moses who leads you into the promised land. I am the ultimate David who defeats menacing giants greater than Goliath, the giants of sin and death and Satan and hell. And unless you see me as the ultimate David, you'll never be like David. Because the truth is we need more than an example. We need a savior. And we need a savior that defeats our greatest enemy. And knowing that he defeated the greatest enemy of sin and death, and that he is the living God and that he reigns on the throne, that changes everything. Everything. Because it means that not only is he reigning on the throne, but that he has promised us his spirit. And so the very spirit of Christ that has conquered the power of sin lives in you and lives in me and, in his, and is strengthening, strengthening us to be more like him so that every day we can represent him and speak his words and in our weakness we can turn to him and he makes us strong. He gives us hope. And as much as we turn to Jesus and see the real hero, then we can begin to become real heroes. But we must remember what any of our trophies mean. Whenever you win a a battle, whether it's against sin or whether it's just a, a battle to lose weight, right? All glory goes to the Lord who gives us strength. Let us pray. God, we thank you for Jesus, the real hero. We thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself in real history, in real time, that you show us the type of king we would be in and of ourselves, like Saul, fearful, like Saul, forgetting your promises, like Saul, trying to pay others to do what we should be doing. But Lord, we thank you that through the power of Jesus, that third king, you can make us more and more like David, someone who leads in weakness and trusts that you will deliver and that you will win the battle. And Lord, wherever my brothers and sisters are tonight, whether they're fighting battles against depression or lust, or anger. 
Lord, whether they're fighting a battle to forgive and restore a relationship and they feel like they're, they're losing ground, they feel bitterness growing in their soul and it's, it's harder for them to forget and forgive. Lord, we pray that they would come, that we all would come to Christ who is the one who does battle on our behalf and who does that battle in unexpected ways and through weakness brings victory. And we pray that as we lean on him and in our weakness, we would be strengthened and we would become real heroes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.